The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We're going to open to John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30, the verses that I read. And the reason why we're going to John, and the reason why it's me up here, sorry to disappoint you, those of you who are expecting Pastor Cliff, the reason why I'm preaching today and the reason why I'm not in uh, Hebrews is because Cliff got sick all of a sudden yesterday and uh, called me and said, uh, called me yesterday afternoon and asked me if I could preach. And, you know, it's in season, out of season. That's what Paul told Timothy. And so you have to always be ready. And, and here I am. So, uh, so Cliff is not feeling well. So actually, before I preach, I actually wanted to pray for him. And so while I will pray, and then we will get into John chapter 10. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful, beautiful morning. Thankful for the rain. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the word of God that we can now open. So I do pray for your help to exposit the word of God in a way that benefits and builds up your people and brings great glory to you as the Savior who has given a secure salvation. Lord, I do pray for Cliff that you would heal his body, that his healing would be swift, that his voice would be healed, that he might continue to preach and to teach that you might give him comfort as he is away from the body and how that can, in and of itself can be a trial. So we do ask for your kindness in his life and over his body that you might heal him. We ask now as we are opening the word that you would bless the preaching of it to all of our souls, mine as well as everyone's, and we just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 10, truly a... A beloved passage, I trust of many of us. I remember going to this passage many times as a young believer, returning to the precious promises in this text where it says, Jesus says clearly that he will not let us go. The Father will not let us go. This is the foundation of our peace, really. It's foundational. And as we think about this topic of foundations, I am always drawn to this story up in San Francisco. So I don't think Melinda and Jeremy are going to be moving into the uh, Millennial Tower, but, or the Millennium Tower, rather, because it, it starts out at $1.6 million per uh, apartment or per condo, really. And so and I don't know if you guys... Maybe you guys do have $1.6 million. I don't, I don't know, but, but I didn't hear that you were moving to the Millennium Tower. But... I always love to, to consider this Millennium Tower in relation to foundations because if you didn't know it, it actually, this, this tower, which was built, I think, in 2009, uh, in 2008, 2009, I believe the total now that it is tilting is 28 inches. And only three years ago, it was 17 inches. So it's not headed in a good direction. Uh, this is, it's a remarkable building, actually. I believe it was built in 2009, and it has housed, been the residence of some famous people. Joe Montana once lived there, and then he sold his condo to Hunter Pence, who I'm not sure if he still lives there, but he did live there at one point. And then a famous venture capitalist named Tom Perkins used to live there, and apparently he still lives there, at least at the time that article was written, he still lived there. People might be on their way out knowing the direction that the building itself is headed. I don't know. But a remarkable building, nevertheless. 
It boasts of a wine cellar and a wine tasting room. It has a movie theater. It has a fitness facility. It has a big area for the kids. It's got its own swimming pool. And then the actual condos themselves are just amazing. They give you this beautiful view of San Francisco. The interior are just, are, are these rooms are just exquisite. These are, this is a remarkable place. And like I said, they start out at about 1.6 million and then they get all the way up to $10 million you can pay for some of these places, and some of which are only 1,500 square feet, and yet you're paying millions upon millions of dollars to secure uh, a location here in this uh, coveted Millennium Tower. Well, the problem is that it's tilting, and the reason it's tilting is because they've got a foundation issue, (laughs) if you can believe it, and they are trying to remedy this situation through a $100 million construction effort. I don't even know how much the total building itself costs, but $100 million just to fix the foundation. This is from a news story, a recent uh, news story. It says, quote, The seemingly unending saga of San Francisco's lopsided luxury skyscraper, the Millennium Tower, may have hit another wall this week, literally. An underground shoring wall buried deep in the Soma soil, which just that phrase Soma means south of market. I didn't know that. Maybe you already knew that because you're so cultured. But Soma means south of market, uh, and it's threatening to hinder the $100 million effort to right the sinking property, marking the latest problem in the beleaguered fix on the tower. That fix, termed the perimeter pile upgrade, began work last year. And now it has to stop because they've bumped up against this shoring wall that was actually installed originally to secure the foundation of this building. And apparently it hasn't done what it needed to. It says the presence of a three-foot thick, 90-foot wall of steel and cement underground. It was installed as part of the earth retention system during the original tower build to enable construction of the five-story deep parking garage next door. And it may stop the plan Altogether, but the the goal of this one hundred million dollar foundation repair project was to actually go in and tilt it back to where it's supposed to be. Have you ever heard of such a thing? It's just just mind boggling to think that you're actually going to get underneath this building and begin to try to get it to go the other direction. Well, the problem in this building, the original problem, of course, is that its its foundation it is bad. The foundation, something is desperately wrong. And so, so you have this sinking and this tilting, which may end up ruining the building altogether. They hope they don't, that doesn't happen because this has been a major investment for many. And yet you have a major problem with the structure of this building because at the foundation, things were off. And now you're spending millions upon millions of dollars to right this problem. Well, similarly, in our Christian life, if the foundation is wrong, if it's rotting, if it's unstable, then the rest of our Christian life will be unstable. The structure of our Christian life, the place where we live and breathe and do, it will be off as well. The deepest root of our Christian life is the assurance of our salvation. We cannot take one step in the Christian life fruitfully in the way God intends for us to walk without the assurance of our salvation. In our text today, Jesus is actually going to give us seven foundational truths for the assurance of our salvation, seven of them, in just three verses. In the bulletin, I have it 
as John 10, 27 through 30, 27, 28, 29, 30. I guess that's four verses. Uh, we're going to start in verse 22, but we're going to pull seven foundational truths out of this text in order to establish for some of us maybe the first time or reestablish for many of us again the vital foundation that we need, the secure foundation that we need for the, the assurance of our salvation. Because without that, if there are cracks in that foundation, it is going to reverberate through the entire structure of your Christian life. And you may begin to tilt to the point of falling over. Without assurance, we will be ever tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. We'll become spiritually anemic. We'll become morally indecisive. And we will find ourselves more and more susceptible to sin. All because we are lacking assurance of our right standing with God. So we need to feed upon the good shepherd's words here in John chapter 10, perhaps beloved words to you already. We need to revisit them so that we can now build or reshore up our own foundation of assurance, joy, peace, and fruitfulness. Well, let's begin with our context. The context is the Feast of Dedication. And if I were to ask you, how is the Feast of Dedication celebrated today? You would say... Hanukkah. Okay, maybe you wouldn't, but now you would. The Feast of Dedication, this was simply the feast that the Jews celebrated when uh, Judas Maccabeus went in and reclaimed the temple that had been previously uh, desecrated by a previous pagan king, pagan ruler. And he went in and he cleaned house and he actually reclaimed the temple and rededicated it. So now they have a celebration called the Feast of Dedication that the Jews are presently celebrating. It's not in the Old Testament. It happened in between the Testaments, but this is now a celebration that the, the Jews were celebrating. And Jesus is now in this place in Jerusalem during the Feast of Dedication. And where is he at? Well, he, it says he, it is winter. And he was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. This was likely a covered area of the temple, not the, the courtyard, but a covered area. You see some pictures. It might have had uh, columns along the, 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 lead, uh, on the edge of it and a roof and so on. And he would have been teaching here, and that makes sense because this is wintertime, and it's a covered area, so it's going to be a little warmer and protected from the elements. So that's the setting. It's the Feast of Dedication, and Jesus is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, this covered area. And the Jews are gathered around him, and they are wanting to ask him questions as they are want to do. And Jesus is engaging with them as he is always doing. And they ask him this question. It says, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And if we're just dropping into John, which we are actually doing, if we're just dropping into John, that potentially could sound to you like a legitimate, a legitimate question. You're like, What's, what's wrong with that question? Tell us plainly. Keep, don't, don't keep us in suspense. Don't hide it from us. Tell us plainly, and, and, and it'll be all good. Well, of course, we know, and if you know the Gospel of John, up until this point, Jesus has demonstrated conclusively that he is, in fact, the Son of God. That is, he, he is, in fact, the Christ. For example, in John 3.18, he refers to himself as the Son of God. In John 5.25, he refers to himself as the Son of God, which would have had messianic overtones coming off of 2 Samuel 7 and God's promise to David. And then Psalm 2, where David talks, or the psalmist talks of this son who will rule and to whom you must pay homage. 
And Jesus referring to himself as the son of God would have been a, uh, a signal saying the Messiah is here. But was it just Jesus saying these things? He is doing the miracles that would attend the messianic figure who would come and the spirit would reside upon him and he would by the spirit conduct these miracles and he is demonstrating his power and his glory through these miracles, many of which he has already accomplished up until this point where they are interrogating him. What has he done? Well, you had Jesus' amazing miracle of the, turning the water into wine in Cana at the wedding at Cana. That's John chapter 2. He shows kindness and supernatural omniscience to a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. He has healed a man who's been an invalid, which likely probably was paralyzed, uh, for 38 years. That happens in John 5. That was public. He fed 5,000 people, which probably was more like 20,000 people, because the 5,000 people would have referred to the men, and it was likely included women and children. So you're looking at upwards of 20,000 people that Jesus fed with Five barley loaves and two fish. That's John chapter 6. And then you come to John chapter 9, and Jesus heals a man who was born blind. So the question is, tell us plainly, or the, the assertion here, tell us plainly that you are the Christ. Don't keep us in suspense. Jesus' response is apt. He says this, and it's totally right. I told you, and you do not believe. It's not a matter of you not having enough evidence. The evidence is plain as day. You ask for me to tell you plainly, it's plain. I've told you, and I've demonstrated it. In fact, he goes on to talk about his works. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. They bear witness about me. They, they demonstrate I am who I claim to be. They demonstrate that I am the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come from the Father to now be your Messiah. It, it's plain. It's, it's obvious. It's clear. The problem is not the evidence. The evidence is abundant. The problem is with you. When we talk about the clarity of Scripture, the problem is not with the Scripture. It's with us. When we talk about the clarity of Jesus' messianic credentials, the problem was not with Jesus. The problem was with the Jewish leaders who did not believe the Jews weren't really interested in, in learning that Jesus was the Messiah and embracing him anyways. We know this. They, they weren't interested in that to begin with. They had already determined that he was a nuisance, a nuisance who encroached on their religious authority. They loved having authority over the people. Jesus encroached on that authority. He also exposed their hypocrisy. That's no fun. And their attitude toward Jesus had been settled relatively early in his ministry. For example, John chapter 8, or I'm sorry, John chapter 5, verse 18. Quote, it says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So early in his ministry, he's referring to himself as the Son of God and God as his father, and this irked them because this was a claim to deity. So they wanted to stone him. In John 7, 32, they sought to arrest him. The Pharisees and the priests sought to arrest him. In eight, John chapter 8, verses 58 and 59, they want to kill him because now he is claiming that he is the great I am of the Old Testament. That's spectacular. Before Abraham was, I am. Every time I hear that, it just makes my heart leap because of what Jesus is claiming. He's saying, claiming, I am Yahweh of the Old Testament. Well, that didn't please them. They want to 
kill him with stones after he makes that claim. So their request for Jesus to tell them plainly that he is the Messiah, it's, it's totally disingenuous. It's not legitimate. The real reason why they want Jesus to state plainly that he is the Christ is so that they could secure sufficient reason to attack him as the context will bear out. The root of their problem was not evidence. The root of their problem was unbelief. It didn't matter what Jesus said or did. He, they would twist his words and explain away the miracles or even attribute them to Satan. Some of them had become so warped in their spiritual judgment that they saw a good work and they said, oh no, that's Satan. Just imagine becoming that warped in your thinking. Well, that's what was happening to some of them. Unbelief was the fundamental or foundational disposition of their soul. So every bit of evidence that Jesus provided, it just glanced right off their hearts. And this is, just, this is, this is vital because this is actually a view into the unbelieving heart. Some of you have labored for years with certain people in your life who you love, and they're just not budging. They don't see the beauty and the love and the glory of Jesus Christ, and you're just like, why? Why? And you labor, and you've given evidence upon evidence and upon evidence. The, the, it's not the evidence that's the problem. Unbelief is the problem. It keeps that evidence from making its way into the heart. Now, what was the cause of this unbelief? Well, John... Chapter 5 tells us that one of the root causes, one of the important root causes, was that they were unable to believe because they sought the glory that came from men and not the glory that came from God. And so Jesus says, how can you believe when you, when you seek the glory that comes from men and not the glory that comes from God? Why would he say that? Because when you have a love affair for the praise of men, it makes faith in Jesus impossible. When you come to Jesus, you're trusting in a crucified Savior. You're trusting in one whose very presence will humble you into the dust and to confess your sins and say, I have no right to be near you, God. I need the forgiveness of sins that you will provide fully for me. Or like Peter said, away, Jesus, leave my presence. I am a sinner. I'm a sinful man. But when you, are, when you have a, a love affair with the, the praise of men, you can't yield to Jesus like that. Jesus isn't beautiful to you. He's not glorious to you. When you have a love affair with the praise of men, well, the, the Pharisees certainly did. The religious, religious leaders certainly did love the praise of men. And Jesus says, you can't believe in me. It's impossible. It impedes faith. It blocks faith. It keeps you from believing. But there's even a deeper root than that that was keeping these religious leaders in the dark. Jesus is going to give the deepest root here. The deepest root... Why, for why these Jews were walking in unbelief, the foundational reason for why every bit of evidence just glanced off their hearts was because they weren't Jesus' sheep. Now, this is a remarkable statement. It's not as though Jesus, they weren't Jesus' sheep because they didn't believe. You can kind of understand that, right? You're not believing, therefore I won't accept you as my sheep. It's the other way around. They weren't believing because they didn't belong to Jesus. That's an astounding claim. The claims that Jesus makes in the, the Gospel of John are quite remarkable when it comes to the sovereignty of God over salvation. He'll say earlier in John 6, no one comes to me unless he is drawn by the Father. No one. There needs to be a sovereign work of God to soften that hard heart 
to soften that unbelieving heart so it can receive the truth. And it's where all of us were apart from the grace of God. And it's where all the religious leaders were. It's a remarkable statement. The works, this is Jesus now, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You're not within this fold. The reason why you can't see me for who I am is because you are not my sheep. What a statement. What does it mean that they weren't among his sheep? Well, Jesus will go on and explain it here in the next few words. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. See, to his sheep, that shepherd's voice is attractive. It resonates. It, you can hear it. The, the sheep recognize the, the shepherd's voice, the good shepherd's voice, and so they gravitate towards him. The Jewish leaders who refused to recognize the evidence that Jesus had amply provided are those who could not hear the voice of the shepherd. They were not only spiritually blind, but they were spiritually deaf as well. They could not hear the voice of the shepherd. But Jesus' sheep hear his voice. And for us, these are precious, precious words that actually build that foundation of our assurance. This is one of the most essential pieces to our assurance, actually. Jesus' disciples, as I've already said, having prayed it and now have already said it here, and I'll say it again, salvation is designed in order for people to have assurance. God desires that his people have assurance of their salvation. His desire is for you to walk out of here today with the assurance that you know the living God, with the assurance that he holds on to you with his mighty hand, never to let you go. Everything about salvation was designed for his people to have assurance. He has chosen us from before the foundation of the world. Our salvation is fully dependent upon the living God, not us. And then in time, he brings his son into the world to pay our penalty, to do all the work required so that we can stand right before God. And then he brings his spirit to then open our eyes and regenerate our hearts and then seal us with the spirit and then he gives us precious promises that say, I will not let you go. And then his, by his spirit, he works all things together for our good, helping us navigate this life and all its treacherousness. And he's done everything for his people to have assurance for someone to walk away from scripture and to say things that undermine assurance, like you can lose your salvation, is to totally misunderstand the entire structure of God's design of salvation, which is to provide His people assurance. When we lack assurance, it is not the fault of God or His salvation. It may be due to sin, it may be due to unbelief, it may be due to other factors, but we must recognize that God has labored, if we can use that word, to so design salvation that his people would have assurance. Why? Because an assured person brings the most glory to God with their life. They are ready to lay it down because they know they have an inheritance secure in the heavens. 
Assurance is vital to fruitful Christian living. I had to learn this the hard way. Man, I struggled with assurance early in my Christian life, and I had to learn this the hard way. You can't just give up on assurance. You have to seek it. You have to get it because it's essential for fruitful Christian living. How can we courageously live for Christ and give up our reputations and our material goods and even our safety, even our own lives, if we're not assured that we belong to Christ? How is that possible? Well, it, you might be able to eke out a little bit of that by just sheer willpower, but it's not going to come from a heart that is secure in Christ, secure in our eternal inheritance. J.C. Ryle, whom some of you may know, I commend his books to you. He's just very excellent. He's an old theologian from the 1800s, and he just tells it like it is. He doesn't mess around. Um, but he, he says this about a lack of assurance and how it keeps us indecisive. He says this, quote, that a child of God ought to act in a certain decided way, they feel, they quite feel. But the grand question is, are they children of God themselves? If they feel that they were so, a child of God, they would go straight forward and take a decided line. But not feeling sure about it, their conscience is forever hesitating and coming to a deadlock. The devil whispers, perhaps after all you are a hypocrite. What right do you have to take a decided course? Wait till you are really a Christian. I believe we have here one of the chief reasons why so many in this day are inconsistent, trimming, unsatisfactory, and half-hearted in their conduct about the world. Their faith fails. They feel no assurance that they are Christ and so feel a hesitancy about breaking with the world. Assurance is the issue. And assurance leads to a life that glorifies God and blesses one's neighbor. And so we need to talk about seven foundational truths on which to build rock-solid assurance. Jesus is going to give us those seven foundational truths so we can build the structure of our Christian lives on granite, not sand. I assume that granite is a good material on which to build a, a house. You contractors can correct me later on. I didn't do research into construction materials as thoroughly as I should have, but uh, here we are. What's the number one truth here that Jesus gives us? The number one truth we've already mentioned is that Jesus' sheep hear the shepherd's voice. And this is so sweet and so precious. This is one of my favorite aspects of Christianity. I love this. I love this. What does it mean that the sheep can hear the shepherd's voice? Does that mean they hear an audible voice? Like you're driving in your car and you heard an audible voice just like you heard it on the radio, you heard Jesus speak to you? Is that what we mean? Is that what the text means? Or you heard his voice as you were in your bedroom? No, that's not what Jesus is referring to here. He's talking about a spiritual reception of his voice in Scripture. A spiritual resonating, a receiving, oh, this is true, and this is good. This is Jesus. This is the Creator. This is God. That's what it means to hear his voice. When Christ's sheep hear the word of God preached, when they read it in the Bible, they hear Christ and they know he is real and they know he is true. I just love this. It doesn't matter who you are. You could have a PhD in theology or you could have gotten saved two days ago. The basis for the reason why you know that this is true is because you hear your Savior's voice in the word of God. I love to hear the testimonies of Christians who say, you know, I was just reading scripture and I just like, I'm like, this is true. It, it's true. And they got saved. I hear so many 
testimonies like that. And, and, then, and then you kind of ask them, okay, give me some real sophisticated reasons for why you believe in Christ. Why are you a Christian? And you're like, and they're like, they, they get kind of stymied because they're like, because it's true, right? Like, can, right? And I, I love these testimonies because it speaks to the sovereignty and the beauty of God's sovereignty and how he opens the eyes of the blind so that you're not trying to logically infer all, all down all these sophisticated steps as to why you believe. You see it and you know it's true. Because the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. This is the basis of our assurance. It's a vital aspect of our assurance. Jesus' sheep hear his voice. That basic ability to hear Christ in the scriptures is meant to be one of the primary footings in the foundation of your assurance. So that's number one. Number two, Jesus' sheep are known personally by their shepherd. They're known personally. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Is that sweet? Jesus knows you. And it's not like he knows you just like he knows all 170 billion people who have ever lived. That's, that's a recent estimate. 170, apparently 170 billion people have, have lived in the history of, of mankind. Jesus doesn't know you that way. He knows you personally, like a shepherd knows his sheep, intimately, by name, and he cares for each of his sheep with a heart of affection and concern, a heart of affection and concern that we are just not even able to comprehend how much the, the shepherd loves his sheep. And in a book that I have read in the past on this topic of, of helping us understand the metaphor of shepherd in Scripture, both for Jesus and then for Jesus' under-shepherds as they shepherd the flock, but now we're going to use it to illustrate Jesus' care for his sheep, it's a wonderful description, taking this, helping us understand this metaphor that, that Jesus is using here. The author writes this, he says, quote, Responsible shepherds know every member of their flocks in terms of their birth circumstances, history of health, eating habits, and other idiosyncrasies. It is not uncommon to name each goat and sheep to call them by name. One of the most striking characteristics of the shepherd-flock relationship is that control over the flock is exercised simply by the sound of the shepherd's voice or whistle. Only a special bond between animal and human can explain this responsiveness. So in God's wisdom, he uses this sheep and shepherd metaphor to illustrate the kind of personal intimate care that Jesus has for every single one of his sheep. Not one will get away. He has an eye on every single one. He knows them by name. And in fact, he laid his life down for each one. As your shepherd, we see in John chapter 17, Jesus actually prays for you, prays on your behalf. And he even says in John chapter 17, he doesn't pray that way for the whole world, just for his sheep, just for his people. Jesus is praying that you will persevere in the faith. And if Jesus prays that you'll persevere in the faith, guess what you're going to do? You're going to persevere in the faith. Jesus is praying that you will behold the glory of God. And guess what? If he's praying for that, you will behold the glory of God. Jesus is praying for you to bear fruit. And guess what's going to happen if Jesus is praying that you bear fruit? You're going to bear fruit. Jesus is praying for his sheep. He is praying for you. He is your shepherd. He knows your problems. He knows your strengths, your weaknesses, your circumstances, your challenges. He knows it all. And he cares about it all. 
And he's the one who has led you in that particular difficult field. Maybe you find yourself in a trial. It's not as though he turned around to look at the other sheep and you, got, you escaped. He's like, oh man, what am I going to do? And he starts running after you. It's not, that's not the way it works. He's actually led you into that particular place because he knows it's good for you to refine you in that trial, to strengthen you, to actually, in many ways, to show you his sufficiency, that he is worth it all, even in the midst of that trial. So that is an essential piece of our assurance. Talking about the foundation of our assurance, this latter piece that Jesus knows his sheep personally. He knows you. If you're a believer today, he knows you, and he knows you intimately. And, and, and what does he say in, in Matthew 7, right? What, what's the, the response? There, there are people who are doing religious works, and what does he say? Depart from me, I never what? Never knew you. That intimate connection that shepherd has with sheep. Number three, important piece to our assurance Jesus' sheep follow the shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You might be thinking, what does this have to do with assurance? Well, our assurance is rooted in the work of Christ. And I had mentioned already that God has so designed salvation that it is made and is designed for us to have assurance. But part of that salvation is being changed, isn't it? Enabled now to put away sin and walk into obedience, walk in obedience to our Savior. It is good to walk in obedience. It is good for us. It brings glory to God, and it's part of God's design that it actually enables and deepens our assurance. You can't have assurance that you belong to Christ if you're refusing to do what a person who saved does. If you're refusing to do what a regenerate heart does, then you're going to have difficulty believing that, in fact, you've been born again. That's why Jesus says, and they follow me. The believer hears the voice of the shepherd and goes with the shepherd. And when he deviates, it's no wonder, he, it's no wonder why he has difficulty wondering if he is attached to the shepherd. So Jesus' sheep follow their shepherd. As a result of our ability to hear our shepherd's voice and our personal relationship with him, we follow him. Our hearts have been changed through faith. Before conversion, we were either adamantly repulsed by Christ or we are simply indifferent to him. We now have a desire to follow after him and to walk in his ways. It may at this present be a passionate desire. It may be a smaller desire, but you have a desire. Salvation is a change of desire. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by faith, but the genuineness of our faith will flow out into obedience to Christ. John says it this way in one of his latter epistles. He says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. That's assurance language. You're walking in obedience to Christ, and this doesn't secure your salvation, but it sure gives you a sense of it, doesn't it? A sense of the love of God. If you're, if you're walking in defiance against the Lord, you're not going to have that sense of close relationship, just like a child who's walking in defiance with his uh, against his parents is not going to have that sense of relationship with the parents. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is an important piece of assurance. We can't expect assurance if we are not 
walking in obedience to our Lord. When we follow after Christ and exercise our faith and obedience to his word, we can be assured that we have heard his voice. Following our shepherd affirms and deepens our assurance that we know him and have heard his voice. Number four, Jesus' sheep are eternally safe. Jesus' sheep are eternally safe. Contrary to what some have taught in the, the history of theology, that you can lose your salvation, this text obliterates that kind of teaching. Why? Because your salvation is eternal. And last time I checked, an eternal salvation is an eternal salvation. It's not a temporary salvation. Jesus talks this way in John 5, 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So the argument of the one who says you can lose your salvation is that you were dead and you were brought to life and now you're dead again. You were dead and brought into eternal life, but eternal life was that's not as eternal as you thought because now you're dead again. That's to play fast and loose with the words of Scripture. And it's not at all what Jesus is saying here. Jesus' sheep are eternally safe because they're his sheep. It cannot be reversed. So then he says, because you're thinking, oh, I could get around that one. I can, I can think of some ways to modify eternal life. And so Jesus says, I know some people might try to modify the words eternal life. And so I'm going to say this, and they will never perish. They'll never perish, which means you can't go from death to life back to death because you'll never perish if you are Christ's sheep. Jesus' sheep are eternally safe. These truths must be meditated upon until you believe them, brothers and sisters. We will languish in our Christian lives if we do not grasp with all our hearts that we cannot be lost. Read this text and meditate on this text till you believe it. Satan would love, love, love for you to become confused at this point. He is just having a heyday with this teaching that genuine believers can lose their salvation. All you need is a seed of doubt. Maybe I can be lost. Maybe I can. And then, poof, he's done. He can, he can go on to find somebody else because his work there is done. You get that seed of doubt there that just maybe I can be lost and you have no more basis for assurance at all. Everything else I just said notwithstanding, you have no longer have any basis for assurance if your salvation can be lost. I know how weak and helpless I am. I just, I'm just, would be utterly devastated if I thought or believed that I could lose my salvation. Because I tell you what, five minutes... From now, I'm going to lose it. On the drive home, I'm going to lose it. At some point. How, what, please don't make it up to me, Lord. Well, thankfully, he hasn't made it up to us. But that's what Satan would try to do, and it's what he's been doing successfully in large portions of the Christian church, unfortunately. I don't know why this doctrine of the, uh, assurance of salvation has so, been so relentlessly attacked by believers. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it. But it has, and so we need to be firm on these texts. Happily, we have a Savior who will not let us go, which is why we sing that wonderful song, which is why that song resonates with so many of us here. We sing about a Savior who will not let us go. 
for those of us who think we can live without assurance, let me just remind us what a lack of assurance will lead to. We won't have assurance of his power residing into us, in us. And we won't have assurance, if we don't have assurance of his power residing in us, then we will labor in our own strength. And when we labor in our own strength, we will end up picking and choosing what commands we want to obey and which ones we don't. We will end up choosing easier, the easier commands or we will perform the spiritual duties that tend to get us the most recognition. Without assurance, we will inevitably become self-righteous and proud. Which is just, again, ironic because the claim has been made historically that it's actually presumptuous and proud to have assurance. When actually assurance is an indication that you are humbly leaning upon the Lord. When you claim that a Christian cannot have assurance, you are claiming that you have the ability to withstand the trials that attend the Christian life and fulfill Christ's commands without the assurance of His power and presence. If that's not proud self-righteousness, I don't know what is. You're telling me that you can make your way through the trials of this life and do what you're called to do in Scripture without the assurance that Christ holds on to you and will not let you go? I'm sorry, that is a breeding ground for self-righteousness and self-will. That's the very definition of pride and arrogance. No, genuine assurance is the fruit of humility because you are saying that apart from Christ, you can do nothing. I need assurance. I need it. I desperately want it. I need to know that God is for me in Christ, not against me. In other words, I need assurance. Number five, Jesus' sheep are under Christ's permanent protection. Maybe you're still thinking, well, I've heard what you're saying, but maybe a false teacher or demons could take me away from Christ. Could that happen? They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Don't you love the, the authority and the power of Christ in that word? The sheep are behind him. He's got his hands on them. The evil one comes along. Ain't nobody touching that sheep. Nobody. Right? One of the reasons I believe why the doctrine of assurance is so prevalent in Scripture is because we are prone to doubt. This is the mercy of the Lord. I mean, He just gives us promise after promise after promise. He designs all of salvation. He tells us about it so that we'll have assurance. And He piles phrase upon reassuring phrase here in this text and elsewhere. Can Satan or his demons or a false teacher or an angry family member imperil my salvation? No. No, they can't. Jesus says that his sheep are under his permanent protection and no one can snatch them out of his hand. This ties directly into the promises of eternal life and not perishing. It even is tied into the promises that God said he will enable you to persevere. It's tied to the truths that God has chose you from before the foundation of the earth to inherit salvation. Your salvation is in his hands, not yours. So secure that Paul can actually look back in Romans 8.28 and talk, talk in terms of your salvation already having been consummated. Romans 8.29-30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. So if you're justified, you're glorified. There's no breakage in that 
chain. Justification leads inevitably to glorification. And I just don't know how Christians can live without this doctrine. Paul himself recognizes that it is actually through assurance that we bear the trials of this life. He makes, Paul makes it explicit in Romans 8 that it is through assurance that you cannot be lost, that you persevere. Listen to what he says. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The justice has been taken care of by God himself. No one can bring an actual charge against you. Who is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God. Your condemnation was already dealt with. It's already been, uh, God's already been satisfied. It's been dealt with in Christ. Who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In other words, will any of those horrendous trials cause your faith to fail? No. That's what, he's, that's what he means. It is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which means you will not stop believing because God will do all that it takes to make sure that you are never separated from him. And this ties exactly into what we're learning in Hebrews with the warnings, isn't it? What is one of the ways that your shepherd, your beloved, trustworthy shepherd is making sure that you never drift away by giving you sharp warnings of what will happen if you don't or if you do drift away so that you will stay close to him. It's one of the means by which he keeps you secure. Your faith will not fail. If you are born again, if you are justified in Christ, your faith will not fail. Even through the worst of trials. I know some of you are thinking about, but what happens if this happens in my life? Surely, if that is devastating thing happens, I will walk away from the faith. Nope. It is through those very, very trials that God keeps your faith secure. What a text. It is through assurance that we persevere through our trials. Why did God design such a secure salvation? Because you cannot serve fruitfully or persevere faithfully without it. If you perpetually lack assurance, you will be ever wandering and struggling in this life. Back to Hebrews 6.11, the, the, the book that we are studying, the book with all the warnings. It says in 6.11, And we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. Assurance is God's will for his people. It is what enables our perseverance. Number six, Jesus' sheep are a gift from the Father. We mentioned this uh, last week, I believe, maybe a couple weeks ago. The, we are a gift from the Father to the Son. He has chosen a people and said, I want to give you a gift of people to worship you for all eternity. And here they are. And Jesus says to this, says this about that. John 6, 
35 through 40, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I shall raise him up on the last day. Jesus is not going to lose any of that gift. It has been given to him by the Father, and he will make sure that none of that gift is lost. Number seven, last one. Jesus' sheep are under the Father's permanent care. Jesus' sheep are under the Father's permanent care. My, it says, uh, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus says that it's the Father's, that the Father himself has a hand of protection over Christ's sheep, and then Christ fulfills the Father's will by keeping his sheep under permanent protection, and the Father is standing alongside Jesus for that same purpose. I mean, you have God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the one who sealed your hearts, the entire Trinity working together for your assurance, keeping you safe. And here the, the emphasis is on the Father. Now, some have picked up this phrase that the Father is greater than all to indicate that the Son is somehow ontologically inferior to the, the Father. See here, proof positive. The Son is not really equal to the Father because it says that the Father is greater than all. And of course, as we've learned, what do you do when you bump up against a problem? Well, you read on, of course. That's vital. You read these things in the context. One of the reasons why Jesus gives this phrase to the Father is greater than all because he's referring to the people that might try to snatch away from the sheep from Christ and the Father. The Father is greater than all of those who might try to snatch away the sheep. So the reference is not made, uh, the, the statement is not made with reference to Jesus, but with reference to all of those who might try to snatch away the sheep. The Father is greater than all of them. He's not saying the Father is greater than all, including me. No, the Father is greater than anyone who would attempt to take Christ's sheep. Well, why doesn't Jesus say that he himself is greater than all? Well, I think it's because that's just not the way Jesus talks about himself in the Gospels, as he has humbled himself under the hand of the Father to be a servant. He doesn't do much by way of self-exaltation at all. It's just not his character. He gives all the glory to the Father, and he waits for his glorification, his very glorification, a glory which he knows he deserves and which he does deserve. He waits for that glorification to be done by the Father, but he's not going to exalt himself. I think that's one reason. But he's already talked about himself in a way that does make him equal to the Father. He called himself the I Am of the Old Testament. And he's going to say in about a moment that he and the Father are one. So if you continue to read, he is basically saying that he and the Father are greater than all. But in typical fashion, he is giving the glory to the Father and not exalting himself. So this phrase, greater than all, it's just it's used to somehow undermine the deity of Christ, and, and I think in context it, it can't stand up to greater scrutiny. Scrutiny. In verse 30, we see that the Father and the Son are so aligned in their purpose of protection that it says that they are one. But this is more than just unity of purpose. The first thing that Jews would have thought of when they heard this statement, the Father, the, I and the Father are one, is they would have thought of the Shema, which goes like this, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the, that's the Jewish context that would have resonated when they heard this. 
And if you doubt that, then read the next verse. The Jews picked up stones against to stone, uh, against, to stone him. Why? Because he just said that he is God. <laughs> that he and the Father are equals. And while that is blasphemous to them, because they don't understand who the Son really is. The Father and the Son are one in purpose, but they are also one in essence, which is precisely why the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. He affirms who he is through this statement. He, along with the Father, is greater than all, for he is one with the Father, and he shares this greatness with the Father. And this power and this greatness is used in order to keep his sheep secure. That's, why, that's, that's what he's doing here. The Father and the Son are one in purpose, and that purpose is to keep his sheep eternally secure so that they can someday enter into a world of glory and of joy that we can't even begin to conceive of yet. That we may be safely brought into that coming kingdom. So we have seen seven foundational truths in this passage to build the structure of our Christian lives upon. Jesus' sheep hear their shepherd's voice. They are known personally by their shepherd. They follow their shepherd. They are eternally safe. They are under the shepherd's permanent protection. They are a gift from the Father. And they are under the Father's permanent protection as well. Jesus' sheep listen to him. They believe him. They follow him. Unlike the persistent unbelief of the Jewish leaders that made it clear they were not Jesus' sheep, these Jewish leaders were without genuine assurance of their right, with, right standing with God, unlike his sheep who have everything they need to know that they stand right with God. Everything that they need to have assurance that they are God's. Their house, the Jewish leader's house, was built on sand and it would soon topple. It would not only tilt, but it would fall completely over. Jesus' followers, on the other hand, experience the spiritual stability, the experience, the experience. It's not just something that we know intellectually, but something that we experience, the stability of assurance as they hear the Savior's voice, follow him, believe his promises of eternal protection. We are built upon a rock, and our home is secure. So let's pray and thank God for this secure salvation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text in your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for speaking these words. We thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for designing salvation in such a way that assurance is the main part. It's the main part of the design. That you are brought much glory in our lives when we are assured of our salvation. Our lives will bear much fruit. So I pray for all of us that we might all walk in assurance and, and that you would get out of the way whatever is impeding that assurance, whether it is resistance to your will, whether it is a lack of understanding, whether it is wrong teaching in the past that we've had to endure. Would you clear all that out so that CBC will be known for those who have genuine assurance of their salvation and, and love you and love others. And I just ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.